0: Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, increment 224. We'll be going to Hebrews chapter 8, verses 2 through 6, and also Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, perhaps, and elsewhere in the scriptures. I want to remind you that not only is Pastor Brian Messick continuing a series on Christ and the Passover, a very excellent series. But Pastor Phil Henry is also conducting a very interesting and powerful series in his power gospel series on Gehenna, not hell. Gehenna versus hell in his Say What series. So I recommend that you tune in to Pastor Henry's messages on Phil Henry power gospel. And we anticipate perhaps other speakers. But speaking of speakers, the main speaker today featured is God the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth who leads and leads and guides us into all truth according to the promise by Jesus Christ. He shows us things to come and most of all he glorifies our Lord Jesus Christ. You can tell the Spirit is the author of Hebrews because the whole homily is to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I've actually entitled this, We See Jesus, because it's from Hebrews 2.9, the first mention of his name, Jesus, and we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. It's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, who shows us the things that God has freely given to us. It is the same Spirit, that we proclaim the word in, we proclaim it in spirit and in demonstration of the Holy Spirit as he backs our play as it were. And it is the same spirit who pours out the love of God in our hearts so that when we do proclaim and preach his word or communicate it on any level and in any way, it is done in love. And that should always be understood because there are some things that we communicate, that are difficult, some things that seem harsh because the preacher is told to rebuke, to reprove, to correct, to instruct, as well as to teach and communicate. But most of all, it is Christ whom we preach and teaching every person we can, warning every person we can. I think we'll have a little bit of preaching, a little bit of teaching and perhaps a little bit of warning all in today's message. When I am given a message that involves warning or even rebuke or reproof, it's always, to me, something that's a matter of fear and trembling because in proclaiming the word, I realize my own unworthiness and sometimes it's quite painful. But when you're a pastor of a church You identify with the Apostle Paul who said that daily it comes upon him, anxiety, not neurotic anxiety like is rampant today in our nation and across the world, but a normal anxiety came upon him daily, and it does upon me for the church, for this local church, and sometimes in some measure for the church at large. So if I I seem to speak critically let's use that old cliche that with one finger one points at others while three point back at him and the thumb points upward to God and desperately requires his grace. And so Father we thank you that you have authored the scriptures by the spirit not only of truth, but of grace. We pray that you'll convey both truth and grace today and that you'll impress upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit and through the demonstration and documentation of the scriptures just how much everything is centered in Jesus Christ, your Son, just how much he is beloved to you and just how much we are beloved to you as we have been accepted in the beloved and for this we're very grateful I pray that you will allow me to communicate your word with accuracy with power, with clarity and that it may be received by all who hear it in kind and may, if there's any rebuke or reproof or correction may we be mature and wise and Look to you, for Christianity has nothing to do with self-improvement, but with growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray these things, and in his name that we give you thanks at the outset of this message today, this increment of Hebrews. Amen. I've made mention of this several times in, I think even in Hebrews, but several times in the course of my teaching in the past few decades, I say several because I looked up the word several and it means more than two, but not many. So several times, I'm sure. I've referred to a Kikuyu proverb. Kikuyu, or a tribe in Kenya, Africa, And this proverb formed the basis for a novel that I read. I noticed when my father used to read some pretty interesting novels, he read Les Miserables. He read something about a coming to America by an immigrant from Greece. I can't remember the title of it. But he also was reading something of value by Robert Ruark, And in my view, that's quite a novel and I picked it up and read it myself. In fact, I think I read it twice. It's about the 1950s in Kenya and about the so-called Mau Mau Revolution that occurred then and atrocities that were committed on both sides of it. It's quite an interesting novel. But it has at its outset a Kikuyu proverb. And here it goes something like this. This is sort of a paraphrase. When we take away from a man his traditional way of life, his customs, his religion, we had better make certain to replace it with something of value now I picture the triune God speaking that way I picture the triune God of of course saying let us make man in our own image and likeness I picture the triune God saying to the with regard to the Babylonian crisis or the crisis of the Tower of Babel let us go down and confuse their language and therefore cause nations to be born with boundaries, many nations. But I can also picture the triune God, Elohim, saying when we take away from Israel its traditional way of life, under Moses' law and under the Levitical priesthood, when we take away these customs of the Aaronic priesthood, even when we take away this form of religion, let us make sure that we replace it with something of value. And God has certainly replaced the human traditions, as Peter called them, with something of infinite value. In fact, with Jesus Christ and him crucified, raised, ascended, seated, enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Now, in our structural analysis of Hebrews, this heavenly homily, I like to call it, we have, at least the way I see it, three main sections. There's different ways people see the structure of but I think simplified it's three main sections. One is one one to seven twenty-eight. We've just completed that essentially in our verse by verse aspect of our study. Two, we have what we have just entered, eight one, which goes all the way to ten. 10- 18, third, 10, 19, all the way to the end, 13, 25. That's a general and, I think, simplified structure of the homily. Now, we've seen how the beginning of the first section, especially 1, 3, links to the beginning of the second section most notably by the depiction of the enthroned Son of God, Hebrews 1.3 and 8.1. He who is the radiance of God's glory, he who is the stamp of God's royal image, he who is the very heir of all things, the one through whom and by whom God created the universe, the son in whom God has spoken in these last days has made purification for sins and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty in the heights. And this links up with the beginning of the second section in one, where in summary what we have had to say so far is that we have a great archpriest seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens so there's a linkage between one this section and this section and then there's also a linkage that we're going to see in the beginning of the second section as it links with the beginning of the third section in an extraordinary way. I'm, I want you to see this because it shows the, cohe- the cohesion and the coherence, the unit integrity of this homily. This link between the second and the third, there is that, the first and the second, now the second and the third, this link is established by the equivalence of the true ten, that's our subject today, the true tent and so the link between the second and third section is established by the equivalence of the true tent in Hebrews 8.2 with the flesh of Jesus tent and flesh tent in Hebrews 8.2 at the beginning of the second section and flesh in Hebrews 10:20, really, in the beginning of the second section. I'm going to leave a little bit of room here for you to discover for yourself what this linkage means. Once again, let's imagine Elohim, the triune God, speaking and saying, when we take away from Israel their traditional way of life, their Levitical system of sacrifice, their religion we will replace it with something of infinite and everlasting value. When we take away the tent that was pitched by man, the tabernacle, we will replace it with the eternal word enfleshed, made flesh. The heart of the Hebrews homily has to do with with this something of value. This invaluable something. This invaluable someone. As Hebrews 8.3 says. You see every archpriest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it is necessary that this priest. Meaning Jesus Christ the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, this priest also have something to offer. That this priest has something to offer, I think is the theme or the motif of the whole second section. could even entitle it something of value or something to offer. What this priest has to offer is something of eternal and infinite value, of universally salvific value the something of value which replaces the traditional shadow sacrifices offered by the priests and archpriests of the Aaronic order so this next section has to do with that something of infinite value of eternal value of salvific value the once for all people and for all time. Sacrifice and the unspeakable gift of Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, now, as Brian Messick has been teaching regarding f f Bruce's principle, which is this: the antitype determines the type and not vice versa, so here Jesus Christ, the antitype, determines or controls the meaning of the merely typical tent Jesus Christ himself is the real tent the true tabernacle the typical man made tent is a faint representation of the true and of him he who said I am the truth now It's not as if Jesus is in heaven ministering or serving in a tent like the man-made tabernacle in Exodus. Instead, the tent in which he ministers is his own glorified flesh. And I'll show you this by documentation and hopefully by demonstration of the Spirit. Documentation in the scriptures, demonstration by the Spirit. Jesus' bodily presence at the right side of God the Father in the heavens is the true and real tent, the authentic sanctuary, the genuine holy places and holiest of all. He is the fulfillment of the type, the true meaning of the man-made tent, the reality of and substance of the shadow. In 1 John 2, 1-2, for example, Jesus Christ is not only identified as the righteous one, but also as the propitiation for our sins. He is the propitiation or the expiation or the putting away or doing away with our sins. He himself is The propitiation of the sins of the world. Not of our sins only. Not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. Not for Israel's sins only, but for Israel and all the nations. Not for Christians only, but for the whole world. Jesus is the propitiation Acquired of the archpriest, and he performs the duty of intercession for us all in the tent of his glorified flesh. Now, this very deployment of shadow and type, and I'm just looking superficially at Hebrews eight one to six really today, so hopefully we'll back up and pick up some of the themes as is our usual custom, but. The shadow and type, the language of shadow, skia, and type, tupos in the Greek, is actually deployed in Hebrews 8, 4 and 5. Let's read it. This is my translation, incidentally. In fact, if he were on earth, meaning Jesus, he wouldn't be a priest, since earthly priests are those who offer gifts prescribed by the law or Torah which gifts serve as a mere copy and shadow that's the word skia there in the Greek shadow skia of the heavenly things just as Moses was instructed when he was about to erect the tabernacle for God said see to it that you make everything according to the pattern. Now, skia, shadow, is followed by this, tupon. We get the word type right from this, T-U-P-O-N, tupon. Drop the U into a Y, and you basically have T-Y-P, type. Tupon, skia, and tupon. For God said, see to it. That you make everything. Notice that he's asking Moses or commanding Moses, ordering Moses to make a tabernacle. This is a man-made tabernacle. And the tabernacle in heaven was pitched by God and not by man. That defines everything in salvation. Salvation is not of man at all. It isn't of man's faith or faithfulness. It is of God's grace and christ's faithfulness salvation is of the lord so again for god said see to it that you make everything according to the pattern tupon that you were shown on the mountain that is comes directly from exodus 25 9 and especially twenty-five forty. jesus is the reality of which the man-made tabernacle consisting of the holy places, as they're called, was merely a type and a shadow. Jesus is the single inclusive antitype and archetype for all the types of the Levitical priests and their gifts and their sacrifices. He is the substance corresponding to the mere shadow of the Old Testament tabernacle with its sanctuary and holy of holies. This is an aspect of the truth, the general truth, that is, reality is Jesus. Jesus, the antitype, determines the type. His flesh is the true tent. His now glorified human body is the true tent. Question, Here's a Q&A for you. Question. If God has done away with the original man-made tabernacle, tent, and he dramatized this in the destruction of the temple in AD 70, if God has done away with the original man-made tabernacle or tent, what is that something of value with which he has replaced it? Answer, the flesh of Jesus Christ the true humanity which the eternal word himself god assumed in his incarnation the body which he offered according to god's will in order to become our sanctification hebrews 10:10 compared with 1 corinthians 130 so let's begin the second section again let's read the beginning of this Second section, which we're carefully entering into now, treading very carefully into. Hebrews eight one. now the summing up of what we are saying is this. We have an archpriest who is of such significance that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A temple servant, the word is leiturgos, you'll see that in print, in the holy places of... The true tent. The word true is alethinos. It means genuine, authentic, true, in the sense here of heavenly, and tent. And tent is an articular noun, it simply means it has an article before it, taste. Taste, and then this word. And these there's a couple of words I really want to emphasize here S K E N E S. Taste, skenēs for tent tēs skenēs tent looks like this in english transliteration tēs skenēs now a temple servant that's what jesus says a minister is a good translation but it means specifically a temple servant in the holy places of the true tent all Archpriests were temple servants. They served in the temple. He is a temple servant in the holy places of the true tent. The one pitched by the Lord. Emphasize that in your brain, in your mind. Pitched by the Lord, not man. That statement alone could be a volume itself. By the Lord, not man. Verse 3, you see, every archpriest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this priest also have something to offer. It must be something of value if it's to replace the former order and the former gifts and sacrifices or if it is to fulfill them. This something that this priest has to offer is the subject of this entire section from one through 10.18. It's the beating heart of Hebrews. The gifts and the sacrifices of the priests of the former order under the first covenant were of limited value for an exclusive people a specific nation. The gift and sacrifice of this priest, Jesus, the Logos and Sarcos, as we called him in John's gospel study, the Logos and Sarcos, the Word made flesh. This priest, the Logos and Sarcos, the Word made flesh, is of unlimited value and for all humanity inclusively. For as Hebrews 9.26 says, he offered himself. And as Hebrews 10.10 says, he offered his own body. And as 10.12 says, having offered one sacrifice for sins forever, after which he sat down. Once again, Hebrews highlights the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal efficacious impact of the cross of Christ. Now, I'm doing this a little slowly and hopefully a little methodically, but leaving room for you to discover. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, begins the third section. And it says this. Again, this is my translation. Therefore, that's the inferential conjunction. Remember inference? Remember inferential? The inferential conjunction, un. Therefore. And the sense here from verse 18, the last verse of the second section, going into the first verse of the third section, it's, it's, the sense is this. Therefore, since we have forgiveness of sins through his once and for all and forever self-sacrifice, and because there remains no other sacrifice for sins. Brothers and sisters, we have bold confidence to enter into the holiest place by the blood of Jesus. And notice verse 20. He paved for us. It says inaugurated literally, but we're talking about a highway here. This is the year of the highway of the king, incidentally. He paved for us a new and living highway. Call it the king's highway if you want. Through the curtain. A highway that runs right through a curtain because the curtain was torn. He paved for us a new and living highway through the curtain that is his flesh. Now we've already seen Tas Skenes, the tent. Now we see his flesh, and we're going to see a correspondence. T-E-S-S-A-R-K-O-S, Tes Sarkos, his flesh. Or sarkos, tes sarkos, outu, his flesh. Let me read it again, therefore, beginning the third section. Therefore, so the second section begins with the true tent. The third section begins with the flesh of Jesus Christ. There is a link between the true tent and the flesh of Jesus Christ because the flesh of Jesus Christ is the true tent. If you read 2 Corinthians 5.1 carefully, you know that when the earthly tent of our body is collapsed, or when our tent is struck, we have an eternal home in the heavens. And so when Peter said, when this earthly tent of mine is struck or destroyed, I want you to still remember the things I said while I was here. Second Peter 1, 15, 14, all the way through 18. Therefore, make that 12 through 18, basically, of Second Peter 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have bold confidence to enter into the holiest place by the blood of Jesus, verse 20. He paved for us a new and living highway, Through the curtain, same word used in Hebrews 6.20. He's beyond that curtain now as our forerunner. The curtain that is his flesh. Here the curtain is his flesh. The curtain is torn. He was torn on the cross in his side, in his hands, in his feet. But his bones weren't broken according to what was prescribed for the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb. Christ our Passover was slaughtered his flesh was torn but his bones weren't broken that's Exodus 12:46 and that's also Psalm 34:20 as well as John 19:36 in fulfillment now what's the linkage here tent at the beginning of the second section flesh in the beginning of the third section now We came to Hebrews via the fourth gospel, among other studies. And I'm going to do a brief redo or revisitation of John just to pull up some things into the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ that weren't there in our first go-round. Hopefully I can do that if the Lord gives me time and the Lord gives me breath. In the fourth gospel, there is this verse which deploys both flesh and tent. Only this time, tent is in a verbal form, so we would say tented or tabernacled or dwelt in a tent. And essentially equates the two, flesh and tent. John 1.14a, the first half. The word became flesh, S-A-R-X. Sark's. Flesh. The word became flesh. And tabernacled. Right back to back with it. Tabernacled. This time, it's the word skenes is found in it, but it's this verb. E S K E N O S E N. So you kind of take the word skenes and turn it into a verb, and it's tented. The word became flesh and tented among us. See how flesh and tent are together? The true tent is the flesh, the now glorified body of Jesus Christ. That's the tent, and let me tell you this, there's room under that tent for all Of humanity. So, in the fourth gospel, there's verse that deploys both flesh, sarks, and tent, skinnies, essentially equating them. Here it is: the Word became flesh, sarks, and tabernacled, or dwelt in a tent, among us. Dwelt in a tent is the Aristactive indicative form of the lemma form of the verb, which is simply skenao, S-K-E-N-O, omega-O, skenao. See, see the word skenes, only it's in a verbal form. Furthermore, in John 1.14b, the second half of that verse, this word made flesh, sarx, is called the only eternally begotten of the Father, the only eternally begotten. Of the Father, it doesn't say son, but it means son. And so we have a correspondence here in John one fourteen in the prologue with the exordium of Hebrews. God in these last days has spoken to us in a son. So John, together one fourteen, reads like this: The Word became flesh and tabernacles, tented dwelt in a tent among us. What's the tent that he dwelt in? His flesh, the flesh that he became, the humanity that he assumed, a humanity like ours but without sin. So like ours but not like ours. Very like us but not very like us. Like us but not like us. The word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt in a tent. Among us, and we saw his glory as if in a theater. Glory that can only be that of the only begotten from the Father. Recently, my wife Pam and I, and my mother in law, and my two grandsons went to a theater and saw a production of David at Sights and Sounds. And I can say that we saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in that wonderful depiction of David. Even showing Christ and him crucified as David was playing and composing Psalm 22, Why Have You Forsaken Me? We saw... In a theater. And this the word theatroma is actually used here in John. We saw as if in a theater, as if a production of God. We saw as if in a theater his glory. Glory. And remember our key verse in Hebrews 2:9, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. We saw his glory as if in a theater, glory that can only be that. Of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, meaning so full of grace and truth there 's no room for anything else besides grace and truth, love and mercy and reality, fulfillment in Jesus Christ is he universally and uniquely and unilaterally covenant. Fidelity. So in Hebrews 1 2, God spoke with finality in a son in these last days. In John 1 18, -18, the only eternally begotten son exegeted the father, explained the father, told him out, revealed him, manifested him. So God spoke in his son, and the son manifested the father the father so spoke in the son that to see the son jesus christ is to see the father john 14:9 in hebrews 10:20 here the curtain is the flesh the curtain is the flesh but the curtain is part of the tent so by a figure of speech called synecdoche where the part is put for the whole the flesh of jesus christ is the whole tent the whole tent is Jesus' flesh, as the curtain is his flesh. So in Hebrews 10.20, at the beginning of the third section, the curtain is the flesh of the eternal word of Jesus. But this is a synecdoche, S-Y-N-E-C-H-D-O-C-H-E, where a part is given for the whole of something, that being the entire tent. This is much, these links. Therefore, between the second and third section, says that the true tent is the flesh of Jesus Christ. Torn while no bones were broken. The entire tent is his flesh. The torn curtain represents his flesh that was torn on the cross, though none of his bones were broken as God's lamb. Again, in fulfillment of the law, In Numbers 12.46 and Numbers 9.12 and the Psalms in Psalm 34.20 and the prophets in Isaiah 53 and elsewhere and in the Gospels in John 19.36. Jesus is the true tent. And this tent is big enough for all humanity. God has made Jesus Christ to be for us all wisdom justification, sanctification, and complete redemption. He is our peace, Ephesians 2.14, and our eternal salvation in Hebrews 5.9. His very name, Yeshua, Yahushua, means Yahweh who saves. He is our righteousness in Jeremiah 23.6. He is our life in Colossians 3.4. He is God's unspeakable gift in two Corinthians eight nine and nine fifteen, to all the human race. He is the utterly unique God-Man, whose significance is universal and universally unifying, who unifies all the being and act of God, and the being and the acts of humanity in Himself, who entered history to make His own history. Our history, and our history, his. This true tent was pitched by God. Pegnumi is a word used here. Pegnumi, where we get the word tent peg, I suspect, but pegnumi. It was pitched by God, not man, by the Lord, and not man. Salvation is of the Lord, not man. Psalm three eight, but. Salvation is also by the man, Christ Jesus, the God-man, the only mediator between the one God and the whole of humanity. In fact, Jesus as mediator, we looked at that preliminarily earlier in our study, mesites, Jesus as mediator of a new, better, and everlasting covenant is a subject that is about to be broached in Hebrews 8. Let's look at it in verse 6. But now he, Jesus, has obtained a superior ministry. That's the something of value to replace the ministry of the earthly priests of the Aaronic order. And with that, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on the basis of better promises. We'll see that those better promises are actually nucleated, in Jeremiah 31 31 to 34 or the Septuagint 38 to thir- 31 to 34. And so the writer makes a pretty neat segue from Jesus as archpriest to Jesus as mediator as a better of a better covenant based on better promises. It almost sounds like hey Jude, better, 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 better. Thirteen times, in fact, in Hebrews. Now, something of application on the level of our time. Beyond what we can see with our physical eyes, which we can perceive by faith, Jesus conducts this superior ministry. And beyond what we can see with our physical eyes, the Lord has ordained this hiatus from our physical gathering. We don't imitate what other churches are doing. In fact, I suspect someday this absence or this hiatus will stand as a protest to Christian services and meetings, etc. There are matters that God is dealing with as the one who weighs the hearts of human beings. The Father is pruning the vine, cutting off dead branches, unproductive branches. He's pruning and purging all of our hearts and minds. And I know that he's dealing with matters that may be preventing our full fruitfulness as a community of companions of Christ. The Lord still does not As he didn't in the age of Joshua tolerate the keeping of Canaanitish items in the home of Achan. He still does not approve of the thievery of Judas or the hidden dishonesty of Ananias and Sapphira. He still requires, even with the radical alteration of the human situation through reconciliation. God still requires of us that we, especially preachers, we renounce shameful secret things, gimmickry in our messages, so that we're not giving pep talks or inspirational talks or motivational talks that exclude or sideline or marginalize Jesus Christ. That we preachers don't employ deception or that we don't distort God's message, second Corinthians 4 2. I don't think any of us, and I include myself especially, I don't think any of us really knows or understands as we ought that the wrath of God, and by wrath of God I mean his transformative justice and transfigurative love, that his wrath, his transformative justice, and his transfigurative love is being directed not first to the corrupt in positions of human governmental authority, not first to those who despise the value of human life and who willingly sacrifice unborn and even now born infants to Moloch on the altar of their own twisted lusts. Not first to those who irrationally deny the creator's distinction of genders and who discredit his preservation of the universe as they genuflect before the altar of a satanic green goddess. Not first to those who fail our children and hand them over to be mutilated and sacrificed on the altar of an old demonic religiosity. Not first to those who, with breathtaking hypocrisy and self-righteous arrogance, attack the freedom of others while they flaunt their own privilege, fervently believing that their agenda and goal is so holy so lofty, so pure, that all means of attaining their warped utopia are justified and even sanctified. Where the butchering of unborn and even born children is called sacred and sacrosanct. Not to those who seek to divide and polarize and to weaken the fabric of our national entity. No, God's transformative love and transfigurative justice is not toward those first. Evil has indeed reached a critical mass in our time. And this evil will be judged. With all of this and more, however, we must not forget that the world has been reconciled to God in the crucified, buried, raised, and now exalted Jesus... We can do all of the critiques we want on the socio-political and ideological evils of our time, but even more important is to acknowledge the alteration of the human situation in Christ Jesus. Nevertheless, there is still the human condition as it is, and this condition may well be analyzed and judged, but God's judgment begins with the present believing church as it is so called whose message often only features jesus christ as secondary to our own lives and works jesus christ the sum and substance the heart and center the life and being of the scriptures has been largely marginalized by a church who boasts of our moral superiority or of our saving faith, as we call it. I don't. Not anymore. Jesus has been, by and large, sidelined by a gospel that lays the accent on human performance and individual faith, or on an arbitrary and capricious election of some to life and eternal bliss and others to damnation and eternal torment. Not a gospel at all. God has found wanting a double-minded message that in one ritual-centered service gives assurance, then takes it away, that centers its existence in raison d'etre around a magical rite and welcomes others to attend its services while it excludes some from its so-called communion. God's wrath is presently on the empty form of godliness, which denies the essence and power of godliness as being entirely embodied in Jesus. This empty form of godliness actually denies that God justifies the ungodly in Romans four five, and that Christ died for the ungodly in Romans five six, that his messianic banquet is for those who can never repay him or issue an invitation in return. Isaiah fourteen twelve to fourteen make that Isaiah twenty five six to nine and Luke. 14, 12 to 14. This form of godliness, Second Timothy 3, five, is the facade that conceals a narcissistic, self-serving mentality and intentionality, self-driven impulsiveness rather than a spirit-led motivation, self-conscious spirituality, so-called, rather than a manifestation of the life of Jesus in our mortal body. The rise of the so called megachurch, where pastors become mayors of little cities offering almost scriptureless pep talks to the masses of mesmerized congregants, has not been an improvement because neglected on every hand is Jesus Christ as the heart and center of their message. Jesus Christ, whom God has made to be for us all wisdom, justification, sanctification, and complete redemption, who is our peace, our eternal salvation, who is our righteousness, our life, who is God's unspeakable gift to all the human race, who is both the utterly unique God-man, whose significance is universal and universally unifying, who unifies all of the being and act of God with the being and the acts of humanity in himself, who, as I said earlier, entered his history to make his own history our history and our history his. The Bible doesn't tell us how frequently to gather or exactly how often to celebrate the Eucharist, but it does command that when we set foot into the house of God to be more ready to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools And the Son of Man himself urges seven times to be careful to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We can be sure that the Spirit will speak of Jesus Christ, not as an auxiliary to a moral, ethical, political, or Christian so-called agenda, or whose name is appended to a ritualistic or religious regimen, but as he whom the Father calls my beloved Son to whom the Father commands that we listen. The Bible does command that when we do celebrate the Eucharist, it is for the express purpose of remembering Jesus' death until he comes. And when he comes, he brings salvation universally. Now, at least from what I've read so far, and I'm closing with this, I believe that Karl Barth was given the prophetic word for our time like no one else. In what I've read so far by Barth in his studies of the epistle to the Romans, in his brief study on Ephesians, as well most of all in church dogmatics, which I have not completed, I found a Christologically satisfying account of the gospel, of the message that the church ought to be propagating. He wrote the following about the Christian message, quote, In a word, the Christian message lives as such by and to the one who at its heart bears the name of Jesus Christ. Later, he added that this Christian message is, quote, a report about him as a person who in his existence and work is absolutely unique and therefore universal in effectiveness and significance. Close quote. Much of the Christian church today is hosting a banquet for those who can respond in kind and who can issue an invitation in order to repay. So it must change its message to highlight the Lord Jesus Christ, who is currently hosting a banquet, an elaborate banquet, for all who cannot repay, and that is all of us. For when it comes to our ability to repay the price that secured our eternal salvation, we are all dirt poor. We are all maimed by the injury of sin. We are all disabled, all blind. Now if at this time in our, in our time, at this time in our time, if judgment is beginning with the house of God, and it is in 1 Peter 4.17, then what will become of a nation that has reached the critical mass of evil? May God radically renovate the blind and naked and miserable condition of the Laodicean church, and may he restore our nation to be a blessing and not a curse to the nations of the world. I've been speaking to the church at large, And I really don't have the right to do so on my own because I personally know that everything I've ever said, done, spoken, or written has been consumed. And I don't know how much of that edifice of my building in Christ will emerge from the flames. And so the church at large is not my immediate concern. My immediate concern is with Tetelestai Phalanx, even though I hope these messages appeal way beyond our borders. Even more, I'm more concerned with my own heart and mind, in terms of personal responsibility, that is. It's not the prayers of the people of God that God hears and responds to. And I don't blame the world for being sick of the cliche, our thoughts and prayers are with you. Because it's meaningless in almost all cases. Sick of cliches in the, in, in totality anyways. Sick of cliches. Sick of bumper, bumper sticker Christianity. And I'll say it again, it's not the prayers of the people of God that God hears and responds to by healing the land. It is the prayers of his people who have humbled themselves and repented of their self-justifying ways, our self-justifying ways, and then prayed. Second Chronicles 7.14 As far as I'm concerned, God's judgment does not begin with the church at large, but with Tetelestai Church, of which I'm a pastor. Not even with Tetelestai Church first, but with me. That's my first realm of responsibility. If we're properly evaluating ourselves, after all, we won't be judged. That is, with an historical judgment that's coming and is already now. And when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord, even us believers, so that we may not be condemned with the world. And by that it means condemned to an historical judgment. When Paul wrote Corinthians, there was a famine coming. And if judgment begins with us, What will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? God will allow us to meet and move forward when he has accomplished his loving and parental disciplinary action. If he wills, he will. Even though we've been reconciled and our situation as well as that of the whole world has been radically altered by reconciliation, there is still our condition, and there is still the judgment of God. So, Father, may we look upon these words and receive them with sobriety and seriousness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.